You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details. Welcome to the Gravity Leadership Podcast. Gravity Leadership is a community of people seeking to live our lives in the orienting center of God's love in the midst of our post-Christian world, learning to lead like Jesus, live on mission, and make disciples. In nature, gravity is the phenomenon that brings stuff together, objects as small as atoms and quarks, and as large as stars and galaxies. We believe the gravity of the Christian life is the love of God revealed in Jesus Christ. The Gravity Leadership Podcast is curated conversations on what it looks like to practically orient our lives and our leadership in the love of Christ, the gravity that holds everything together. This is the Gravity Leadership Podcast. You're in the right place if that's what you're looking for. Mm -hmm. I'm Matt Tebby, one of the co-hosts, along with my friend, my uh, increasingly elderly friend, Ben well, Sternke. Well, aren't we all getting a little bit older? We are, but how do yeah. you... Kn- so I was thinking about this. I mm-hmm. I got up from the couch this morning. I have this little nook that I sort of sit and read and pray in the mornings. Mm-hmm. And I got up Sounds and nice. I realized that I seldom get... I seldom stand up these days without making an audible noise. Oh, yeah. Me too. <laughs> it's my... Bu- like, I, don't I know, see what you're saying. I yeah. vocalize yeah. like how ugh. hard it is for me to yeah. stand. Like, ugh. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. I, I noticed that. So I... I um. I, I have a sitting posture in the morning. Um, I, I have a place where I go and uh, read and pray. Uh, but it's just like, it's just a chair. And uh, when, I, when I've sat there for a little while, I do, like when I, when I get up, I do notice like, like stiffness in my back. Yeah, you're no spring yeah. chicken, Ben. No, yeah. You can't just stand up anytime you want Yeah, next anymore. comes bifocals. Uh, right, uh, You're yeah. going to eat at the old country buffet. Uh-huh. And you probably will turn uh, down else? the base. Turn down the base in your car. <laughs> Make sure that's nice and low. Treble's nice and high. Right. Anyway, anyway. Uh, speaking of uh, old people, we have a young person here with us. Mm. Probably younger than we are. Probably. Uh, I don't our, know how old it is. <laughs> we're joined. Sometimes we're joined by another Ben who's not here with us today. We're joined by another Matt. Yeah. Uh, Matt Bates is our guest. He's written a book called Salvation. By Allegiance Alone, that is probably in my top three books I've read all year. I mm. read like three books a week, though. This is an incredible book. Uh, Matt, we're going to talk about what it means to follow Jesus, uh, how to accept him in our hearts, and, <laughs> and all that kind of thing. But first, will you... That was a joke. First, will you give us an introduction? Tell us uh, who you are and what you're up to most days. 
Hey, thanks so much, Matt and Ben. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak with you guys. Um, so yeah, my context, uh, I'm uh, an associate professor of theology at Quincy University. Uh, it's a Catholic Franciscan school in Illinois, uh, but I am neither Catholic nor Franciscan, hmm. uh, but did PhD work at Notre Dame, and I, I suppose in some sort of vague way received the Catholic blessing. Uh, <laughs> and uh, so uh, I've been there, I've been teaching here for eight years. Um, okay. And uh, I do uh, I do work on the Trinity, work on Christology, and work on salvation theory um, as part of my my kind of research uh, uh, efforts. Uh, but at, at the same time, involved in church life, uh, very pro church, and um, so that's just a, a little bit about my context and background. Yeah, just yeah. very briefly. What can I can I ask you a little bit about being a Protestant? I, I'm, I'm assuming that you are a Protestant. Being a Protestant who works at a Franciscan university. What are what do you find helpful about that or, or encouraging and what's challenging with you for that? Yeah, great question. I, I am a Protestant and um, I kind of grew up in a you know, conservative independent Bible church. Um, and so, you know, part of my uh, my life experience was to try to sort out uh, what that all meant as it was, um, for lack of a better term, a, a fundamentalist sort of upbringing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm not bitter about that uh, as uh, I'm pretty traditionally minded myself. Um, but um, nevertheless, there were some things to sort through because there was yeah. a, a real strong anti-intellectual current. Hmm. So, um, yeah. So, so what you're saying is you're working at Quincy to save the Catholics. You're there like on a <laughs> secret missional mi- mission? <laughs> that, that, that could be part of it. You know? <laughs> um, but yeah, so anyway, I ended up eventually in a Catholic context teaching. And one of the things I think that is freeing about that uh, is on the one hand, I don't have a horse in the race here. Hmm. Um, sometimes like the inner Catholic world can be pretty complex, complex and fraught, right? Is uh, it's not exactly a unified house in the way that they no. want to present that to, to outsiders, hmm. uh, to insiders, right? Uh, there's a, a lot of, um, acro- you know, sort of, um, just, uh, hard feelings, uh, maybe for yeah. lack of a better word yeah. <laughs> and, um, divided house. So uh, not having a horse in the race can be nice because, uh, the, you know, as people are sometimes having internal conversations about Catholic matters, uh, I can pipe in and they, they don't really care because I don't have a horse in the race. Right. Interesting. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. On the other hand, um, I think the thing that's uh, great about being a researcher at a Catholic university is uh, if you're in a really tight confessional Protestant framework, like if you're, you know, Missouri Synod Lutheran or you're mm-hmm. uh, in, a, in, a, in the Reformed world or whatever it might be, uh, those, um, those confessions can have such a coercive power still uh, hmm. on the faculty that they know if they were to step outside the bounds of those or were to question them in certain ways, they'd lose their job. Yes. And, uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of institutional power and threat. I think that um, that uh, sometimes can affect scholarship and maybe yes. even what the kinds of questions people are willing to ask yeah. or where they're willing to go. Uh, so it's nice to um, you know uh, hopefully I would have the courage to write whatever I need to write regardless. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's nice to not have that kind of pressure. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's so true. I, I I went to seminary up in Chicago and a buddy of mine wrote an amazing PhD on Revelation and the use of the Old Testament in Revelation. And his advisor said, well, <clears throat> this is all good, but you can't, you can't say this. <laughs> you know what I mean? Basically, like, yeah. you have to figure out how to frame your argument in a way that where the powers that be and sort of the, the gatekeepers will be okay with it. Mm. You know, And I'm sure that happens a lot maybe in 
that happens a lot in uh, Protestant circles where maybe it doesn't happen at, at, at Quincy for you in the same way. Yeah, that's right. Well, I mean, <laughs> Catholics can always lean back on the dogma. They can say like, okay, well, whatever, you know, Dr. Bates is saying or whatever some other random professor is saying, uh, they can say that doesn't agree with what the Catholic Church teaches. Even even for a, a Catholic, you can have deviant Catholics, mm-hmm. but they can always lean back on the dogma and say, well, that's just not what the church teaches. Protestants don't have that luxury. Right. Um, hmm. We we at the huh. end of the day, um, everything goes through the court of appeal of Scripture, and so um, th- without having a, a sort of authoritative dogma to lean back on uh, or authoritative, um, you know, sort of bishop structure, uh, it can be quite different. Yeah. So um, yeah. Anyway, that's interesting. Well, speaking of uh, going back to the Bible, hmm. I, I was I came I was raised Roman Catholic, and then came to faith in college. And the gospel, as I heard it, is very different than the one that you're naming in your book, Matt. So I'm going to share a little bit about the gospel I heard coming to faith in college, mm. and then I'd love it if you could describe a bit about why this book was written, maybe using my story as an example. I don't know. Mm. We'll see. So I, you know, I was raised Roman Catholic. I, I believe that God existed, mm-hmm. but but the Bible was simply something that important or smart people read, you know, like Socrates or or Shakespeare. <laughs> you know, it was like a book that you were supposed to have on your shelf, and if you're in certain circles, you should be conversant on it. And I'm sure it's interesting, but it doesn't have any actually real-life application. Well, I met these people in college that actually lived the, the Jesus life out, but the gospel they shared with me, which I initially received and responded to, but as I grew in the faith, it became less and less plausible or meaning meaningful to me. And it was basically this. It was basically that um, uh, the gospel I heard was, your, your sinfulness has merited you sort of a, a debt that you can never repay. Because, because your sin isn't just bad things, but it's an offense to a just and holy God. And that offense is uh, eternal and infinite, and you, you're a finite, uh, non-eternal being. You can't pay this debt, but Jesus has paid your debt. And so if you trust in his payment of your debt, paying the penalty that is yours, uh, if you trust that and say it with your mouth, then you can be saved. And, and, then, and then what happens after salvation is essentially you continually bring to mind how thankful and grateful and appreciative you are for the gift you've received of faith. And that gratitude then is what enables or empowers or propels you into obedience. Hmm. So th- this, is the, this is sort of the gospel that I heard that I received, and it's it's in contrast, or maybe even in tension a bit, Matt, with what you lay out in your book. Can you can you share just briefly, like a, a summary of maybe what you're describing in your book about what the gospel is and how it's a bit, maybe a couple hmm. ticks different than that? Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, I think your story resonates with many of us. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> I think that's the gospel many of us heard growing up. And um, I think we also want to say that um, that there is a lot of truth to that narrative, right? Um, that it's that those those things you described are all true, yeah. but on the other hand, they're not the gospel. And I think that's um, <laughs> that, that's, that's sort great. of where the point of confusion is. That's is that huge. I think that that's huge. Yeah. What would you say they are then? If they're not the gospel, what are they? There, there are. Um, 
I would say that there are reconfiguration of salvation related facts, <laughs> mainly, <laughs> yeah, mainly drawn from Romans, right, um, and Galatians. Uh, but it's it's to a degree a Romans road sort of approach. Yeah, and um, the Romans road is not the gospel. The Romans road is, um, yeah, it's a it's a story that draws on certain salvation truths. Uh, and these truths are to a degree considered timeless propositions. Yep. And it's our attempt to arrange those into a system uh, yeah. of salvation that we then impose the name gospel on uh, because it's something like the gospel. It seems like that's that's the idea we have in mind. Yeah. Huh. Okay. Wow. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's fascinating. I think that was one of the breakthroughs for me was when I realized Romans wasn't Paul sitting down and trying to get all his timeless truths about the gospel out, but rather Romans is his book written by a desperate pastor to people he hasn't met to try to help them <laughs> solve yeah, with, a problem yeah, that he's uh, problem hundreds of miles yeah, away yeah. from, right? Yeah. So, um, well, okay, so if, if, if what I just said isn't the gospel, but there's salvation-related facts, it sounds like there's a larger story, maybe? I don't know, I don't know what metaphor you'd use. But there's a there's a category there's something else that these facts fit in that bring coherence to what the gospel is, and I, I think you do a good job of laying that out in your book. Can you just give us like the premise or the the thesis of, of what that is? Yeah. So the the way that I would uh, put the gospel in a different framework would be to um, pay really careful attention. I hope to what the Bible itself says about the gospel. Um, and I think that our ideas about the gospel are really dominated by justification um, by faith uh, because it's sort of the, the Protestant inheritance, mm-hmm. right? Um, as yeah. Luther seemed to say that justification by faith is the gospel, or at least uh, he, he, he said that often enough or, or slid those together often enough uh, that that became the popular understanding of the gospel. Yeah. Uh, but whenever we look at what Paul actually says about the gospel in Romans 1, 3 through 4, for instance, when Paul's delineating the gospel. That's how he actually opens the letter, and he says that the gospel has been promised in advance by God, um, Mm. so that it's something that links to the Old Testament story on the one hand. And then he goes on from there, and he talks about how uh, this gospel concerns God's Son, and God's Son came into being by means of the seed of David. Now, if we just stop there, it would sound heretical, uh, because it would suggest that Jesus came into being and that he didn't always exist. Mm-hmm. But then Paul qualifies that and says, I'm only talking about in as much as this pertains to his flesh. Yeah. He, mm-hmm. said, he uses the, the phrase in Greek, katasarka, uh, only, only as, as this accords with his flesh, he says. So that the Son of God came into being then, but only the fleshly part of him. Uh, and, it, and this all happened through the seed of David which is probably a reference to uh, uh, his birth through the Virgin Mary, who was also considered to be a Davidite. Mm -hmm. So uh, here we have the first statement then that would seem like it's actually the gospel is the incarnation. Uh, That's something that we don't usually think about as part of the gospel, but it sort of points us to a wider story. That sounds very Eastern Orthodox. (laughs) It does a little bit. (laughs) Um, Paul goes on from there, though, as he continues to talk about the gospel in verse 4 in Romans, Mm -hmm. Romans 1-4, and he says that, uh, that this Son of God was declared to be something further, Son of God in power, uh, by means of his resurrection from the dead. So he says that, uh, and, and that this again pertains not to everything about Jesus, but it, it's qualified again, that this has to do with, in as much as it accords with the spirit of holiness. 
So this se- the second statement then is actually a statement of Jesus's enthronement, mm-hmm. that he's been installed at the right hand of God. He begins this story as son of God, but then he's installed at God's right hand as son of God in power. So he attains to a new office. So whenever we begin to think about the gospel in a wider framework, we see that it's not about justification by faith at all, at least not as as we've heard it so far. Hmm. It's about Jesus's incarnation and Jesus's enthronement at the right hand, Hmm. and that this actually is all linked into the Old Testament story. Yeah. Yeah, we're uh, we're recording this uh, actually on Good Friday. Um, I'm not sure when when we're going to release it, but we're recording on Good Friday, and... um, uh, I'm preparing a, an Easter Sunday message, and that part of uh, part of what I'm uh, contemplating right now is just how, when I was growing up, the resurrection to me felt like kind of a, a weird little happy ending to the real story, which was, okay, there's this mechanism now by which our sins can be forgiven, because Jesus took the penalty, and then, you know... And then he rose from the dead. And he went back to God, and it's all great now. You know, it's all you know. But um, but this this story it's is like the appendix, almost, right? right? It's like uh, you know. But he came back to life, and it's fine now. Well, you know? the, well, his resurrection proved that he was the son. Right, right. It's yeah, like this. Yeah. It was an apologetic. Right, right. What it was. Yeah, that's all it was. So, uh, but what you're saying is like an inherent part of the gospel is actually what happens after the resurrection and in the ascension, you know, into heaven, which isn't just like Jesus going back home, but it actually is the inauguration of a completely new state of affairs for the cosmos, where Jesus is enthroned, right, in, in a way that he wasn't before? Is that what you're saying part of the gospel is? That's right, Ben. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, I think that you're right. Um, your sensibilities are that the energy when people talk about the gospel falls on the cross mm-hmm. and especially on the atonement, right? Mm-hmm. And yep. that um, when we kind of circle back to Matt's story, I mean, really, it's it's believing the atonement, right? That was sort of the yeah, pressure yes. uh, yep. or the emphasis in that gospel message that he heard as a college student. Um, yeah, oh. and certainly we don't want to say that that's unimportant. That would be horrible. Uh, <laughs> it is very important, yep. yeah. right? Um, but but yeah, we can't stop there and exhaust the gospel at that one moment, right? We have to press mm-hmm. on beyond it to the resurrection, which, as you as you both point out, isn't just the happy ending. Uh, this is actually a statement that Jesus has life, right? And if our quest mm-hmm. is to have life too, it's because we're hooked into his resurrection life. Yes, And so we can't just sort of think that that's like the happy ending that is like, well, it's just like party time because Jesus conquered death. It's 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 got to be hooked into... The, seeing that as the source of our own life. Hmm. Uh, but then uh, that's where the classic, uh, m- many Protestants do recognize that, I think, and, and yeah. Catholics and, and Orthodox, right, that, that the resurrection is included in the gospel when we think more carefully. Well, we give most of the attention to the cross, but the resurrection, yeah, okay, we'll, we'll give it its due. Uh, but very rarely will you hear a gospel presentation continue on to the enthronement. Um, and yeah, that is the the new state of affairs is that Jesus is now reigning over the universe as the the God human mm. uh, uh, that uh, is now fulfilling the intentions for uh, God's quest for humanity in the first place. Mm. Yes. So then, so then, uh, the, where my mind goes then is the title of your book is Salvation by Allegiance Alone, and so in Matt's framework. Um, which, you know, I, I grew up with that too. But like in, in that old framework, faith uh, is primarily thought of as perhaps cognitive assent or verbal confession, like to, to the atonement theory, right? To like, okay, here's how my sins are forgiven. I, I, 
believe it. So actually, right? it's not salvation by faith in Jesus. It's actually what I came to see is, and God accommodates to this, right? So our theology is yeah. never perfect, and God's more gracious than we are intelligent, uh, <laughs> you know, at, at any time, yeah. right? Yes. Uh, but, but what I realized was that my salvation wasn't in faith in Jesus. My salvation was in my faith in my faith. So I trusted the way that I thought God was operating. Yeah. Like the to the degree that I could understand and explain the mechanism by which God could be okay with me was the the d- d- degree to which I was saved. Yeah. Yeah. So you're you're trusting you're trusting your own you're basically like if if what you were saying was not the gospel it was just a collection I loved your phrase of salvation Matthew. facts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So a, a reconfiguration of various salvation fa- facts pertaining to salvation or whatever. Yeah. So if that if that's like basically then faith becomes like I like I assent to all these facts, um, but you are obviously translating um, faith as allegiance, and I th- I think that's I mean that's where my mind goes. If if Jesus is enthroned as the the Lord of the universe, as the King of the universe, um, then faith actually ends up meaning something else, and the call, the response to the gospel then becomes something different than assent to these facts and try not to sin too much. <laughs> yes. Right? You know? Yeah. So so unpack this allegiance thing. Why is that so important? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I liked how you, you juxtaposed, you know, um, concerns over like just a pure mental ascent mm-hmm. uh, with the truth uh, and true understandings of faith, which go much deeper. This was actually a concern for the reformers too, actually within medieval Catholicism. Okay. Um, the emphasis was to a certain degree on faith as um, believing the appropriate doctrines. Uh, and the reformers actually were concerned about that wanting to say, no, no, it's, it's, it's something different than that. Uh, and they they really they really moved to trust in the promises of God, and they wanted to especially put forward the idea that we have an unshakable internal confidence, yeah. so that we uh, that that true faith sort of like sees that God has made these promises that all the promises of God are yes in Christ, mm. and what true faith means is that you grasp a hold of that and it's your lifeline you hang on to it mm. uh, because it's your only hope. Uh, and you bring nothing to uh, uh, God other than this hope as, as our salvation is by grace. Um, so, uh, yeah, and so what ends up happening within that construction is that, uh, just as Matt points out, right, um, you begin to think like, okay, well, I need to have faith because this is what pleases God, and so faith is the appropriate mechanism by which I please God, and so I need to trust that trust works. And right? <laughs> so a lot of, yeah, a lot of energy ends up getting directed in, in, into a certain kind of existential concern, like, because we begin to then to wonder, like, am I really trusting enough? And then we, we take consolation. We go, okay, well, Jesus does say that I only need to have faith the size of a mustard seed, right. you know, a grain of mustard seeds, all I need. Right. right? Uh, and we're like, okay, I guess it must be okay, but I'm not really sure because sometimes I doubt. Right. Um, right. I, I hope I have the grain and I, I had it yesterday, but maybe I don't have it today or, <laughs> yeah. um, well, I still got the grain at least. Okay. We were yeah. like, okay, even if I'm, I'm concerned, I've got the grain. Um, mm, so all yeah. these things, um, I think are, um, problems that come about partly because of a lack of attention to what pistis or pistuo, which is the Greek word for faith, hmm. what it meant in its ancient context. Uh, and so, yeah, um, I can develop the ideas of allegiance a bit more, but why don't I give you some space to respond to that first? Yeah, so I just think about sort of our cultural, philosophical inheritance in Western culture, how we've, mm. we're have we sort of all Cartesian rationalists, whether we want to be or not. 
And when and when, when that's our philosophical seedbed, and it's a it's a filter we can't see, we just use, then everything gets sort of reduced and um, maybe compromised even by that philosophical heritage, that cultural heritage. So it's you know ration, rationalism or maybe the Enlightenment Cartesian sort of project of, I, I think, therefore I am, right? That we that to be human means primarily that we are, well, the subject, the thinking subject. Like, it actually does reveal some things to us, but it also conceals a great bit. And as you're, you're sharing, Matt, I'm thinking like, this is a, like, we come by this problem honestly. We, we sort of cogitate and over-rationalize things because we're products of our culture, yeah? Yeah, for sure. Um, I do think that uh, you're right, that maybe the, the um, condition we find ourselves in in modernity as a result of Descartes and others um, maybe does stem to a degree also from the inherited Protestant framework that impacted not just Protestantism, but Catholicism and Orthodoxy after the Protestant Reformation mm. and, and did sort of throw this quest of like, how do I know for sure uh, in a more thoroughgoing way before humanity in, in, in it wasn't such a, a huge concern, I think, prior to the Protestant Reformation. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, I do think we come by these questions honestly, and um, that uh, there is um, certainly um, space for doubt within the Christian tradition. Yeah. Um, I do think that the allegiance model can help with some of this, uh, hmm. because I do think that whenever we begin to think about the true meaning of faith, and um, we realize that its range of meaning is huge. Like it does mean just trust sometimes. Um, there are other times where it can mean proof or assurance, or uh, it, it can have to do with oath taking. Uh, it can have to do with uh, uh, propositional truths. I mean, there are a lot, it has a big range of meaning. But when we see that part of the range of meaning is indeed allegiance, that it can mean loyalty um, and demonstrably so. Uh, this helps us, I think, to realize that maybe some of our um, our tendency to separate mind and body, uh, to say that really what God is happy with is my mental yeah. furniture, yeah. my mental trust process, and he doesn't really care what I do with my body, or he does care, but that only comes after the proper thinking part, yeah. or the mental ascent, or the trust. Mm. Um, that's it, man. That's, that's what I was sold. If you get all the mental furniture arranged correctly, you, don't, you won't have to think about your body, because it'll just happen. Yeah. Right. That's the, the and that broke down for me. Like I, you know, I I'm way overeducated and I've read way too many books, and uh, I I can just say like anecdotally that the smarter I've become hasn't necessarily led to the holier I become. Mm. Yeah. You know. Yeah. There are many of us who are on the more scholarly end of the spectrum who would certainly wish it was true. Right. <laughs> if I could <laughs> buy, if I could bowl. buy holiness. <laughs> Yeah, that if reading books led to holiness, yeah, some of yeah. us would be quite holy. Um, yeah. It, yeah, it doesn't work that way. Um, you're right, it does break down. And um, I think that whenever we begin to see that allegiance to a king uh, maybe has a primacy in our salvation, uh, this can help us to bring body and uh, and sort of mental furniture together hmm. into one package and to say that um, what what our salvation depends on then is not earning it, uh, but it does depend on having an appropriate loyalty to Jesus the King. And this is a qualitative thing that involves um, all that we are, our bodies, our minds, uh, all one package of trusting mm. allegiance. Hmm. Yes, and that, that word allegiance is a, a bit jarring for me, mm-hmm. because the only context I have for that word in my life is I, I, went, I grew up in a Roman Catholic uh, grade school, and every day we started mm-hmm. class with a pledge— 
pledge of allegiance and we put our hand over our heart and we'd face the flag and we would pledge allegiance to the, the Ameri- United States of the America. American flag, yeah. Yeah, well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> a funny funny little anecdote here. I was a co-pastor about 15 years ago and you know, this is before the age of Christian nationalism was really talked about and we didn't have an American flag in our sanctuary and this couple had a big problem with it mm-hmm. and just said, hey, why don't we have an American flag here? And uh, my co-pastor at the time, a uh, wise person, said, well, because we're Christians uh, <laughs> and we come from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Yeah. And they were like, well, do you hate America? And he's like, I don't, I don't hate America, but uh, pr- I, I prefer Canada. Because he, he lived in Canada for a while. Anyway, and, and they said, would you... And then they, like, they, they were like shocked, and they looked, and we're sitting around the Eucharist table mm-hmm. together, and I'm like, you know, barely in my 30s. I'm kind of scared to death. What's going to happen here? And they're looking at him, and they go, would you, would you even pledge allegiance to the flag? And my friend Dave, he looks at him, and he takes this long pause, and he goes, I would if the flags, flag said Jesus is Lord. <laughs> And then he yeah. starts laughing, and they start laughing, right? So anyway, like, he kind of broke the tension. But I, I share that story to say, I I pledged allegiance to the flag for years, Matt. And I don't know what I was doing. What was I doing, right? What am I saying when I pledge allegiance to something? Because that's what you're describing here as mm-hmm. what our faith to King Jesus is. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, in, in the pledge, it does say, you know, you're pledging allegiance to the flag. I have no idea what that even means either. Right. Um, but this uh, particular the, to the republic yeah. for which it stands, that makes a little more sense, right, right? Uh, as you're, you're pledging to the republic. Um, so, yeah, no, I don't know what you were doing or I was doing when I was five <laughs> and I was pledging this. I think that we all delight, uh, especially little kids delight in memorizing things. And they like, you have that pledge down and you memorize it and you say it and it's powerful. Hmm. Um what it actually means, um, certainly it, 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 sort of, uh, it, it sort of evokes some sort of vague nationalism. Uh, that's probably its overall effect. Um, and so as we, as we, as we kind of circle back to that and we think like, well, how can we mobilize this for Christ, right? Yeah, how can yeah. we do better uh, uh, with it? I, I do think that whenever we pledge allegiance to Jesus, uh, we are combining a number of things. On the one hand, uh, we are recognizing that he is the true king of the universe, that he has been installed at the right hand of God. And uh, whatever evidence to the contrary, uh, it would be evidence that we um, that we haven't probably looked deeply enough to see the signs of God's glory through. I would kind of think about mm. the Gospel of John, right? Mm. As Jesus performs these mighty deeds, they're called signs in the Gospel of John. They yep. unveil his glory. Uh, whenever you see his glory, you you give your... Um, you, you believe is the language John's going to want to use. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, that language shades towards ideas of trust and loyalty, even within the gospel of John. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, and that, then you, um, you have life because of that. That's sort of the sequence in John, yes. right? Uh, so that it's like, see a see the signs, uh, see the glory through the signs, uh, give your allegiance to Jesus, the King, uh, and then find that you have life because you've done these things. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, uh, as, as we think about then what's necessary, I think we, we need to see the world around us and see that uh, Jesus is king and that we can we can see that more clearly whenever we pay attention to where the spirit is operative, right? Um, that, uh, that we see that like in the midst of a brokenness that would be only brokenness, uh, we see a secret breaking through of God's kingdom. Uh, because we see the spirit at work there. Hmm. Um, and so whenever we're pledging loyalty to Jesus, we're, we're pledging loyalty to the one who is the public king uh, in the sense that the, um, it's a true objective fact, um, but it's yeah. not public in the sense that everyone can see it because not everyone can see through the signs to see mm-hmm. the glory yet. Got it. 
Um, so anyway, those are some yeah. of my thoughts. Um, I, I'm reminded, uh, Matt, of um, uh, are you familiar with uh, uh, Dallas Willard's work? I don't know how much you've read of it, uh, but he um, w- one of the biggest revolutions for me in terms of understanding the gospel and like what it means to respond to the gospel and even like preach the gospel, evangelism, and all that kind of stuff. Um, came from him, and I can't remember if this is in one of his books or a, a talk I heard him give, but he talked about um, pled like your 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 language of allegiance. Um, I'm relating that to what he talked about as like how do you follow Jesus? Like how do you actually you know treat him as your your master and your lord? And he said um, <laughs> one of the simplest things. He said um, he said well find something that Jesus says was a good idea and do it and see what happens. <laughs> Yeah, I was like, and oh, then, that that sounds pretty okay. No, no, I can I, do that. I actually, yeah. I, th- I think we we're, I was at the same thing. And the question mm-hmm. was asked of him: How would you share the gospel, Dallas? Oh yeah, yeah, right. Because yeah. other places are sharing an atonement, and I, we like we knew that that wouldn't be what Dallas would say. And he'd say, "Well, read the gospels until you find something that seems like a good idea, and then try it. And then when you fail, mm. ask him for help." <laughs> uh-huh. And I was like, man. That's- I mean, there's some beauty in that because of its simplicity and sort yeah. of just like it's yeah. kind of folksy brilliant, you know? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it, yeah. it, he is saying, basically, find the place where the Spirit stirs you to give allegiance to Jesus as your king, and then when you come to the end of your flesh, ask ask for the faith to trust him to do it. Yeah. Like, basically, I, I, think, I think is what he's saying. I, I, I think I was struck by how you were saying, like, Matt, this is an objective fact that he is the king. And I was always struck by Willard's, like, he really believed that it was objectively true. <laughs> so he's like, oh, just ask him for help. Like, he'll help you. <laughs> like, like he was real, you know, and the, you know, like, it would actually happen, you know. Anyway, I'm not sure. Is that what you're describing? Is that what you're talking about? Or is there more to it? Uh, that's, that's certainly along the, li- the lines that I'm thinking. Yeah. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. one, of the, one of the powers, I think, of an allegiance model is it does bring together uh, discipleship and salvation. Those, yes. those seem like they're ships passing in the night so often in Christian yes. conversations, right? But the main idea within most, um, I would say, do- dominant Protestant models of, of, of salvation would be that first you get them saved, you get them justified, mm-hmm. or uh, you get them righteous, right? Uh, and then you get them plugged into a discipleship program so they can be sanctified and they can grow in their holiness and yeah. increase in their righteousness. But do not get those confused. Uh, right, not right. That yeah. justification and sanctification are um, uh, can be talked about together. We have to hold those as separate um, sort of orbs. Uh, and this really traces back to Calvin. This was Calvin's mm. fundamental move, uh, was to uh, explain our salvation by separating justification and sanctification, saying that they happen simultaneously, but they're separate concepts and must be treated as such. Hmm. Um, I think that's deeply problematic, ultimately, on a biblical level, even. I think that... Um, to be honest, I think that Calvin is making stuff up. Um, <laughs> it, um, it's a philosophical nicety. It sounds nice. Um, yeah. And to a certain degree, you can make a system that works through that. Yep. Um, but at the end of the day, you're imposing something on the Bible that is not the yep. Bible's concern. Yep. And what ends up happening then is you end up segregating uh, salvation from discipleship. And, and it's, 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 even even if you can find a way to say that, no, no, they, they both go together, uh, you still are always talking about them in separate categories or separate yeah. spheres. Allegiance helps us to see why that's wrong, I think, because yeah, that's good. allegiance involves something bodily from the get-go. 
And mm. allegiance suggests that uh, what it means to come into right relationship with Jesus in the first place uh, is going to involve a certain kind of um, uh, of posture towards Jesus that is going to demand something of our bodies yeah. all the way from the ground up. Yeah, that's fascinating because what you're saying, you're connecting our bodily response to our faith in in such a way that it should act as a confirmation. Like, oh, yes, I like I obeyed Jesus here. I'm allegiant to him in this area of my life, and and I receive life. You know what I mean? So so it's meant to confirm, but inside the 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 doctrine that those have, things have to be separate, it actually has the opposite effect, that I'm I'm never actually able to take a step of allegiance toward Christ because of the fear that it delegitimizes my justification. <laughs> Right, yeah, that can happen. Yeah. Sure, yeah, people yeah. can get a, uh, yeah, there can be a complex around that. Yeah, right. That like uh, I'm worried about trusting in my works is the complex. Yep. Uh, because I know that that would really tick God off. Okay, so <laughs> I know yeah. that like whatever I do, I gotta <laughs> not look at myself and my own works, and uh-huh. I need to just have faith because I don't. I I, I really I realize that would really not be good uh, and would be an offense to God. So uh, in light of that, then I don't, I'm paralyzed. I don't, right. I can't I don't, do anything. I, I don't do any works because I did one. And then I felt so good about myself because <laughs> right. I did it. Right. I was patting myself on the back. So in, in such a self-congratulatory manner, right? right? That, uh, that, that can't be good. But then yeah. I knew I was trusting in my works. And so uh-huh. I just stopped doing anything good Yeah, uh, because uh, I thought it was better. It's safer just to think about God. Yeah, <laughs> and to think mental. about me as a wretch. I'm a wretch. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. even if I get do, the mental furniture in order, get it in that's order. All, that's all you can do. Yeah. yeah. So, so uh, the, the the works. Then we misunderstand what Paul is describing with works. I wonder if you could share briefly about that. And I think the corollary that's on the flip side of that is we misunderstand, like almost tragically, what grace is. You know, I, I was given the definition of grace, and you'll still hear this in, in the pop sort of evangelical world, that grace is getting what you don't deserve. Yeah. Right? And uh, man, that's like such a small, mostly unhelpful gloss on what grace yeah. is. And you referenced Barclay's work on his ma- magisterial book. I mean, it's just an amazing book on grace. But could you just give us clarity on when you say works and when we say grace, what do we mean and what do we don't mean? Okay. Uh, well, why don't I start with the grace piece, um, and then and then we'll we'll circle around to the works. Okay. Um, I think you're right that um, grace is often just glossed as getting what we don't deserve, and um, that's um, there's some truth to that. Obviously, uh, the half truths are always the most dangerous, mm. um, as they can sort of cause us to stop and feel like we've exhausted it without pressing on further. Um, I think that the most helpful th- place to begin um, with thinking about grace is to think about God giving a specific gift. What we tend to do with ideas like grace is we tend to abstract them, yes. and we tend to think about, well, it's God's favor toward us when we don't deserve it, and it's it can become almost like a magic fluid. Like, God gives me <laughs> grace, and it's like I, I get this, like, you know, this little dollop of, of fluid flowing over to me. Um yeah. Stop thinking in the, the, I would encourage the church to stop thinking in that way about grace uh, and begin somewhere else and to think about it being one specific gift God gave, the gospel itself. Hmm. Um, whenever we begin to think about um, grace in the realm of gift giving, rather than abstracting it away from specific gifts God gives, we we'll say, hey, what is the greatest single grace that God gave? 
And we begin to think, you know what it is? It's actually the gospel itself. Um, that's, that is the grace, the premier grace. Um, we, we make grace historical then, and, yeah. and we make it uh, specific in a way that can begin to drive um, a better understanding of our salvation. Uh, Paul encourages us to think about grace this way uh, in a number of places where, um, you know, in, in Titus, for instance, we talks about, you know, the grace of, of God now appearing. I mean, he doesn't have in mind the idea of, uh, suddenly, um, you know, uh, God was not favorably disposed towards humans, and then he became favorably disposed. Right. He's not talking about an abstract grace. He's talking about the gospel. Like, uh, yeah. And this gospel, then, is something that allows us to find our salvation. Hmm. So um, there's, there's so much more I could say about grace. Barclay um, speaks about it in six different ways. Hmm. Um, and uh, some of that would include thinking more about the ways in which grace is effective for us the way in which it demands a reciprocation um, yes. that in fact we can have wrong ideas about grace. It's a free gift. Therefore we can't do anything, but actually gift giving antiquity demanded that we respond to it. Yes. Yes. But I, I think if we begin with, by seeing grace as the specific gospel gift, um, that begins to help us um, think more about why it's not absolutely opposed to the idea of works. Yeah. So I, what, what came to mind was that, that uh, story in the Bible just to just to apply this, our faulty understanding of grace, and then the understanding of grace you're describing. When Jesus is, comes walking on the water to the disciples in the boat, and they're scared to death, right? They're beside themselves, scared. And and Peter says, mm-hmm. "Hey, uh, Jesus, if that's you, tell me to come onto the water." And Jesus says, "It is me. Come." And like, just imagine reading that story, and then the text says, "And Peter raised his hand and closed his eyes and patted his heart and said, that is so good, so yeah. good.'" Oh. Thank you. And that was it. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, uh, well, that's what we do to God's voice. And to, like, like, we have this internalized abstraction that yeah. doesn't have any concrete or particular realities in our body or anything else. Mm-hmm. And it would be ridiculous, right? Yeah. But, but Peter received the gift that Jesus was giving him in that moment, but it was obvious that he had to actually step on the water. In order to receive it, mm-hmm. and that's what yeah. you're describing, yeah, with allegiance and grace. Yeah, yeah, I think that um, that's a that's a helpful way to think about it. Um, so, yeah, um, as as we kind of move from thinking about grace, you'd also ask some questions about works. Yes, and yes. So, as we think about the interfacing between um, grace and works, um, one of the points of confusion about works is that um, works can be seen as any kind of moral effort. Um, and like the, the, any, any, anything that we might do to strive to please God, well, that's just a work, mm-hmm. right? Um, it, it oftentimes has, has been treated that way. And this again goes back to, to Luther for Protestants. Mm. Um, whenever we look at works a little bit more precisely in, in the Bible, um, th- this would draw on new perspectives on Paul discussions, although I don't agree with everything that falls under that rubric. Uh, Nevertheless, one of the key insights is that whenever Paul uses the word works, it's probably a shorthand for works of Torah or works of law. Mm. Uh, And that whenever Paul uses the phrase works, then he has in view some specific kinds of works like circumcision, uh, keeping a kosher table, and so on. And these are still works that demanded performance. They still had to be done. Um, But uh, what Paul is saying is that is that God doesn't save us by 
these kinds of specific Jewish law performances. Yes. Rather, he has given a gift, the gospel itself, yes. and that we respond to the gift by giving our allegiance to the king. Mm. And whenever we have given our allegiance to the king, then this involves bodily doing. It's not opposed to any and every kind of work. Uh, it just means that we can't be saved by a system of rules mm. or by a system of of even the highest rules, even yes. Jewish law that God had given himself. Mm. So, um, so Paul is uh, pointing to a qualitative answer that we need to be led by the Spirit into obedience to Jesus the King, mm. uh, and that our salvation depends on that trusting allegiance um, and not yes. on uh, obedience to specific <laughs> Jewish works of the law. Yeah, that's good. I'm reminded of another uh, Willardism. Uh, he said, effort is not earning. Learn to distinguish them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like effort is not earning. Like every effort you make is not you er- trying to earn your salvation. If you're trying to earn your salvation, stop it. But if you're just making efforts to obey Jesus and, and you know, lean into his teaching and believe that it's true, well, then keep going. Well, part of the existential anxiety you named earlier, Matt, like of, of getting the mental furniture, and do I have enough mental furniture in place? Mm-hmm. Is my mustard seed bigger than my uh, thorn in my flesh? You know, all those kinds of questions. It actually does ignite sort of our, our guilt and shame kicks on the religious earning machine. Yeah. So it's like it's, it's feeding the fuel yeah. for the thing we're trying to fight against. Yeah, right? that's interesting. Um, yeah. I, I wonder if, so I, 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 love, I love this discussion, um, but I wonder if, I, I'm just thinking about our audience, um, the people who are listening. Um, uh, we don't have tons of scholars uh, and theologians, uh, but we have a lot of leaders. We have people who are leading small groups people who are leading families, people who are leading churches, people who are trying to lead a group of people sort of into life in Christ, right? So um, what, like how, do you have any advice or do you have any, like how does this message of allegiance, like how does it end up playing out for people who are, you know, they're, they're, leading, a, they're leading a church of 100 people or so, and they're, and they're just trying to lead these people into life in Christ, like what what advice would you give them about where where does this hit the ground for them? Yeah, that's a dangerous question because you're <laughs> asking me to speak outside my area of expertise. Uh, I tend to defer to pastors, right, with regard to you know. Um, I think they do have greater practical wisdom. I, obviously, I'm trying mm. to do that too. You know, as yeah. I'm involved in church leadership uh, in a variety of ways uh, and have been historically, and in trying to lead my own family, trying to lead my students. Yeah. Um, but I, I don't have the the same kind of on the ground daily grind of that that a pastor does. Yeah. So I do think that they're uh, maybe better equipped. So what I do have to say, um, I guess, take with a grain of salt. Uh, realizing mm. that um, some of you probably have better ideas about how to live allegiantly than I do. Mm. Um, That's great. One of the starting um, places, though, in thinking about how to live this out has to do with the images that we have in our mind um, mm. about who Jesus is and trying to reconstruct those images. Um, obviously, we're invited to think of Jesus uh, in, in a, a plethora of different images in the Bible, and I don't want to deny any of them. I mean, he's mm-hmm. our shepherd. He's our friend. Uh, he's the lamb. I mean, he's the light. Uh, we could go on and on, right, with metaphors that the Bible encourages us to think about Jesus. The, 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 I think that something that can help us, though, is to, is to rank them or to think about a premise yeah. uh, with regard to these and whenever we do, I think that the New Testament is has a sort of a ubiquitous um, metaphor that it, it forces 
to be primary. And if we don't make that one primary, we begin to screw everything up. Mm. And the primary one is that Jesus is the Christ. Um, Mm. It's so obvious that it's taken for granted, right? We just even call him Jesus Christ. as if like his last name. name. Yeah, yeah. Um, but it, if we begin to switch our images, right, and it, if our dominant image um, uh, or the dominant image among the people around you is that Jesus's uh, importance, uh, his main importance, if your dominant image is that he is uh, the Lamb of God in the atoning sense, mm. right? I think that's actually a, um, that's actually a misprioritization. Mm. Uh, or if your dominant image is that he's the shepherd, or or if your dominant image is that he's uh, your friend, or or mm. that it's that he's your brother. All those are important. But if we don't have the royal image yeah. at the forefront of our mind, if it's not the first one we leap to, yes. um, then I think we, we're in danger of misrelating to Jesus in a fundamental way. Hmm. So I, I think that some of what we need to do is cast vision as leaders. No hmm. surprise there. Um, and, <laughs> yeah. uh, and casting again and again um, that royal image and hmm. helping people to think about what did kings do in antiquity? Yeah. We need to do more work on that. Uh, what mm. were their what was their main job um yeah. well they they involved some of that involved judging some of that involved ruling some of that involved representing god on behalf of the people yeah. uh, 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 to the people uh, there was a lot of different jobs kings had yeah. but kind of casting that vision again and again of the kings yes. so that people then begin to think the fundamental way i relate to jesus is that he is the king mm. um and that that's my main category that's a question I would have for you, um, both of you, Matt and Ben. What do you think the dominant category are mm. uh, is for Jesus in your in your groups that you're part of? That's uh, a good question. What do you think the, the yeah. main image is? Hmm. I would say <clears throat> healer, deliverer. Mm-hmm. But, but yeah, also, lo- also Lord. Yeah, I was just thinking, like, the language we use a lot is Lord, and we co-pastor a church together, so yeah. we're in the same ecclesial environment. But, um, but yeah, I think we say Lord Jesus a lot, but I think the yeah. dominant imagination people have for what Jesus does What does his lordship midst, do? Yes. It, it delivers me, it Heals redeems me. me, it restores me. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Um, r- rather than, um, you know, and we're trying to, like, he also wants to grow you up. He wants to train you. He wants right. to mature yeah. you. Yeah. You know, that's kind of yeah. our focus. Hmm. Uh, but we, we we actually have, we find a lot of people have major, major baggage about the kind of king that Jesus is. What does yeah. authority and power employed in love do? And most people's imagination for that is very anemic mm-hmm. because they're yeah. used to authority and power employed in something sub-loving. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. Then, and then they project that onto God. Right. They're yeah. like, I don't, want, I, don't want, I don't want God for a king. I don't want a king at all. Um, no. The other thing that occurred to me, Matt, when you said that is, you know, Jesus proclaimed the kingdom of God. And then Paul takes the kingdom of God into, into the Roman Empire and doesn't use kingdom of God. He uses more Jesus as Lord. Mm-hmm. What are your thoughts about, that's Paul, that's Paul contextualizing missionally this reality of the kingdom of God. Mm. And Jesus contextualizing missionally the reality of the kingdom of God, right? Do we have that? same do do we do the same thing or do so what we typically do is we say jesus is lord that's what this means but we don't see paul saying the kingdom of god has come that's what this means we see paul doing the work of contextualizing the kingdom of god for his audience and my question i guess is do we teach people what a lord is and a king is when we live in a you know a liberal democracy 
a republic for which it stands, right? <laughs> or or do we translate it, or both? Yeah, I think, well, we, in order to translate it, I think we do have to begin with doing the hard historical work and helping people to get what this message would have meant as as it was you know, issued forth by Jesus and the apostles and to help them to imagine um, as hard as that is, right? You know, as we're so distant now from the idea of a king, yeah. like, yes. um, you know, and um, we do have to get them to imagine what it would be like to live under a king and to live under his absolute authority. And mm. I think you're right. We are, um, um, one of the troubles can be that we, we have a difficult time conceiving authority in loving ways. It's hard to combine images of Jesus as the, you know, the, the one who washes our feet as a King, mm. right. Um, and to reconcile that with, you know, portrayals we see of gross abuses of kingship, whether we're watching, you know, uh, some sort of documentary on Henry the eighth or whatever it might be. Yes. Right. Yeah. And we, we have these kinds of ideas of royalty so that are, that are a lot of those stem from, you know, uh, the legacy of, of, the, of uh, the monarchy in England, right? And um, that doesn't necessarily look like Jesus's uh, yeah. kingship. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I think we we, we need to be careful in, in realizing that Jesus also is a king who commands. He still took leadership over his apostles. Mm-hmm. He washed their feet, but it, it wasn't that he didn't, he didn't, it wasn't that he was afraid to serve as their genuine leader, um, and to boss them around sometimes, tell them, you know, hey, you know, you, you need to prepare for the Passover. You guys go and do this right now, right? Mm-hmm. And they do it uh, because they're his his uh, apostles. Uh, and so I think the church sometimes can be so nervous about um, kingship too yeah. that is domineering that it can that it can move too far away from the idea that Jesus might actually command us to obedience. That yeah. that might be one of the main things he does as king, right? Yeah. Uh, that he might give us a new command to love one another, and this is something we actually have to do. Yes. Like, yeah. With our bodies. <laughs> with your body. Yeah. Yeah. No, that, that's, that's good. And I think the other thing that comes to mind to me about, you know, contextualization and that kind of a thing is uh, if I think if we go too far away from the, the text and like the language of the church, like uh, in our contextualization, we don't equip people to know how, what to do. Like if they're in a worship service and, you know, Psalm 118 is read. You know, they don't know what to do with it because we've so, like, over-contextualized the yeah. gospel that they can't even recognize it when Scripture's read. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's an extreme example. But um, I think both I think both things are, are probably the, the right way to do it, is, is reach back and say, what does it mean that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, you know, this King? Uh, and, then, and then, you know, reach into our modern day and say, what, what, does, that, what does that mean? Yeah. And what does it not mean? You know, even just naming some of those fears for people can be really yeah. helpful. Yeah, so. this has been great, Matt. Like, uh, your book is super important, necessary. We we actually lead uh, leaders through a coaching, um, a three ten month kind of thing uh, of coaching and training, and your book is uh, a part of the supplemental reading for that. So, mm-hmm. it's, oh, that's great. It's vital yeah. and it's really helpful. Yeah. Uh, tell us what you're working on now. I know you're taking what you wrote here and extending it a bit. Can you just share briefly what that's about? Sure. Um, yeah, so I have a book coming out in September uh, called Gospel Allegiance, and uh, it is an attempt to extend this um, this initial work that I did in Salvation by Allegiance alone and to make it a little bit more accessible. It differs from Salvation by Allegiance alone uh, primarily in the sense that it is gospel first hmm. and that it, it works much more extensively on the gospel itself. Um, and uh, certainly I talk about faith as allegiance quite a bit too. Um, but 
Uh, it's a little tighter book, um, Salvation by Allegiance Alone. If I was to describe it, it's it attempts to be maybe a theology of salvation um, in a kind of broader New Testament sense. I look at topics like the image of God, uh, for instance, uh, and uh, talk about how the Imago Dei, um, what that might have to do with our salvation, about um, the theosis or uh, w- w- traditionally Eastern Orthodox approaches to salvation, which would involve conformity to the image of God. Mm. I do some of those kinds of things in Salvation by Allegiance Alone. And some um, some reviewers of Salvation by Allegiance Alone uh, felt like that uh, was off topic. Mm. Um, I think they didn't really quite get what I was trying to do. I think the title of the book made them think, well, this is all about allegiance. Um, but nevertheless, it, it did kind of help remind me that uh, in seeking to extend this work and to make it even more approachable, it might be a good idea to go narrower but deeper. So I, I get into what grace means more extensively than I did in Salvation by Allegiance Alone. I get into the works problem more extensively. Mm. I get into faith itself uh, at least as much, if not more, than I did uh, with, with, with regard to Salvation by Allegiance Alone. Um, but really, most of the energy is spent on the gospel and and how it's the gospel itself that forces us to rethink what faith and works and grace mean. Yeah. Huh. Well, will you come back on and talk about that in September? Sure, of course. Will yeah. You? Well, yeah. I um, don't know if it will be exactly September, sure. as my September might be busy, uh, but uh, <laughs> like, uh, October, November, very, at some point. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Great. I'd be I'd be glad to very come back spoken. on. I already. I'm just already. I, I shouldn't have said that, but you, uh, you in saying it, I, you made me freak out as I was already thinking about all the things I've lined up. <laughs> <in September. laughs> oh I, no! I can't come in yes, September. No. I can't come. Yeah. Um, yeah. Hey, if if pe- if people want to connect with you online or virtually, how would they do that, Matt? Yeah, um, well, I'm on Facebook. Um, I, in theory, um, am on Twitter now, um, but I, I have actually not really used it much yet. But I'm planning on beginning to do a little bit more with Twitter. Um, so it's just Matthew W. Bates uh, for Twitter, uh, or Matthew Bates if you look me up on Facebook. Um, but yeah, that's that's the main way you can connect with me. You can always shoot me an email. I'm kind of old fashioned. Mm, uh, I nice. I barely barely have a smartphone. Um, I really just started using one last year, and my wife and I share it. So I'm kind of a you know. <laughs> nice. um, I live in a cave. Also, did yeah, I tell you that? Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Your you're yeah, big Amish beard over fire <laughs> uh, when I don't eat it raw. <laughs> Your Luddite street cred, uh, we diminished. Yeah. If your email address isn't an AOL. Yeah. dot com or, 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 or Juno AOL, so <laughs> or Juno, Juno. Com. or yeah. Net Zero. Net Zero. Um, yeah. Hey, and you have a podcast too, yeah? Yeah, I do. Yeah, uh, the podcast is on script, uh, and so the it's yeah www.onscript.study, or you can find it on iTunes or Stitcher or whatever yeah. it is that uh, people use to find podcasts. On, on script, all one word. It's a great if if this kind of conversation uh, really gets your motor running. Uh, on script is a great podcast. Yeah. They they talk about biblical studies and a little bit of theology, but uh, mostly scripture studies and people who've written books. Um, I actually just saw somebody put on Twitter that one of your recent episodes, I can't remember what he said. It was Shane Blackshear. Uh, <laughs> Let's hit pause and call him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but he said, uh, he said one of your episodes recently like is some of the most important scholarship you know, oh. that he's ever heard from the Ooh. Bible. I can't remember which one Ooh. it was, but anyway. 
cool. have to. Yeah, well, we do get some. Yeah, we get some good people. So it's mostly what we do is um, we we tend to interview professional biblical scholars or theologians about okay. recent books they've written. Okay. So yeah, there's like six co-hosts. Um, Matt Lynch and I founded the podcast together, but it was more work than we could handle, so we sort of expanded and mm. brought some other co-hosts in. Uh, and yeah, it's really been a lot of fun, though. It's a great yeah. opportunity to have, just like you guys are doing, great conversations. Yeah. yeah. And if you're like me and you really want to, you know, buy the $80 academic book, but your budget only affords you $15 books, you can listen to Unscript. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll, they'll summarize their books for yeah. you. Yeah. Yeah. No, so it's, it's really true. good. Yeah. 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 Great, Matt. Well, thanks so much for being here. Uh, really appreciate your work and uh, God bless you, man. Yeah. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Ben. See you later. Bye-bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Gravity Leadership Podcast. If you enjoy learning from this podcast, please be sure to show your support by rating, reviewing, and subscribing on iTunes. Be sure to share with your friends on social media too. And we would love to hear from you. So please email us at podcast at gravityleadership.com. You can join our online community for free at gravityleadership.com slash join. You'll get our latest content delivered straight to your inbox, as well as an email most Fridays with curated links to articles we found interesting or helpful. To join us, go to gravityleadership.com slash join. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.